Well, good morning, good morning. Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope that your Christmas season has already started and that it started well. We're going to be uh, this morning in our series called Discover Christmas. So if you got your Bibles, let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, last week, we started this series by looking at uh, the hope of Christmas, the, the true and lasting hope that Jesus uh, brings. This morning, we're going to discover ultimate peace as we continue our journey through this series in a very familiar passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter nine. It's on a lot of Christmas cards this time of year. And uh, if you've made your way there, we're going to start reading in verse number six. Uh, Isaiah writes this. He says, for to us, a child is born. Uh, to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And my favorite line is this, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Christmas uh, is a time of the year where in, in many ways we create uh, an, a kind of alternate reality. And here's what I mean. That oftentimes with the, all the euphoria that goes along with Christmas and the Christmas traditions and the, all the things that we enjoy through the holidays, in many ways, it becomes kind of escape from reality for us. We just seemed a bit more joyful. We get uh, a little, a bit more uh, jolly with the season. We kind of get uh, excited about all the, the thoughts of the parties, get-togethers, and the Christmas exchange, and all of those uh, things that we have uh, with the holidays, and, and even with the music. I know, I don't know about you, but there's something that the Christmas music does in my heart. Like driving here this morning, I'm listening to Christmas music, and my, you know, I'm just kind of feeling it this morning. Like just the the songs bring back memories of of. Different different uh, services have been in or maybe moments of life. And so there's almost this creation of, of, um, of euphoria that's created that escapes some of the difficulties and sadness and even some of the strife that we have in our life that, that we, for some, they're putting on uh, you know, this facade and the, the marriage, we're gonna kind of pretend like things are okay. Let's just get through the holidays and we'll pick back up where we left off with the fighting and arguing. After that, uh, you've got stress at your work, but you're like, man, I'm gonna give them a little extra grace because this is the holidays. And so in, in many ways, this is what Christmas is like. And it's, it's often created by the carols we sing and the songs that we love to listen to. And, but often we fail to realize that the songs that give us this sense of joy are oftentimes written at a times of, of, of deep anguish and suffering. One of the songs this week I was thinking about is a song that I love. It's, it gets a lot of play right now on the radio. Casting Crowns kind of redid it in a new version. It's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Anybody heard that song before? I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's written by a man by the name of Longfellow, Henry Longfellow. He was a poet, and he writes this as he's thinking about the Christmas bells and the songs that they play, and he, he writes this poem, and we love this song. And here's a couple of, of, of stanzas of this song. It says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. He goes on to say, and and I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. It's kind of a catchy thing. 
And he's capturing what happens often when we maybe hear certain songs. And for him, it was the bells ringing of the carols. And, and all of a sudden, these thoughts came about peace on earth and goodwill to men. But this poem was not written at a time of celebration for Longfellow. It was, it was written at a time of great suffering and anguish. The song was written in 1863 on Christmas Day. He's walking down the street. And as he's walking down the street, he hears the, the bells begin to ring and the carols begin to play at a local church and he stops and these thoughts begin to flood his mind. He begins to pen the words of this song, but the backdrop of what he was feeling that day was not joy, it was sorrow. You see, two years earlier, Longfellow's wife had burned to death in a fire and he was severely burned from trying to rescue her. Civil war had just broken out and so there was war all over, death everywhere and his son, joined Lincoln's army and in doing so was shot in the back and believed to be paralyzed the rest of his life. And so here Longfellow is walking through the streets feeling grief and sorrow and he hears the bells. He hears them ringing, hears the carols and begins to pen this song. You see, this song had six stanzas originally. And we typically only sing three because the others get a little dark for us. I wanna give you two of those stanzas that we don't often sing. Here's what he writes in the rawness of the moment, in the genuine heartbreak of where he was in life. He writes this, he says, from, then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. You feel what he's feeling? As the cannons are ringing, the bells are playing and the, and the, the songs are out there, but he's not feeling it in this moment. And what I love about this is that Longfellow brings some raw emotion to the Christmas table. Because for Longfellow in this moment, the grief and the pain was so real and the sweetness and the sentiment of, Christian, of Christmas was not enough for him. You see, it wasn't enough to sustain him. He was going through very real sorrow in the midst of the loneliness of the season. As he's thinking about the wife that he lost, as he's thinking about the son that may never walk again, these carols and these songs didn't bring warm and fuzzies. It reminded him of the sorrow and the reality of where he was in life. And he just brings some honesty to the table. He just simply says, I'm not feeling it. The bitterness of life has soured the sweetness of the holidays for Longfellow. And some of you are like, man, we picked a bad day to go to church. It's cold, it's rainy, and the pastor is depressed. I can see it. <laughs> but I, I want us to, to press into this because I think there's something beautiful in this. That Christianity is about real life. Christmas is about real life. It's not just about carolers, carolers singing and lights flashing. It's not just about the cheer and the joy and the jovial decorations, all of those things. And all of those should be a part of the holidays, but there's so much more. You see, for I know many of us in this room and some of you watching online, this has been a very difficult year for you. 
This has been a year for, of loss. This has been a year of, of, of economic hardship. This has been a year where the traditions of getting together with family is not possible because maybe you've lost that loved one or maybe just because of COVID and, and, the, and the social distancing, your family's not gonna be able to, to experience some of the things that you normally get to experience. So for many of us, it's like in the facade of all of this, if we were honest, there's just something in our life that's like a peace is not there. And, and, and I don't want to... I don't want to be a downer, but I think all of us can go through the holiday season sometimes with the mask on and not get honest about where we really are in the holidays. And I love this because Longfellow kind of tells us it's okay to express what you feel because God's big enough for that. And the question we need to be asking ourselves as Longfellow writes this song is maybe he's asking himself, you should ask this of yourself if you're going through a season of difficulty is, is Christmas just about the sweet sentiment that's just here and gone? Or is there something of substance that undergirds me even when life is not well? And I believe that there is. I believe that there is some substance underneath all of this holiday cheer that gives us hope and peace when life is really hard. In fact, what you find in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter nine specifically is just this. You see, we often do with the scriptures what we often do with the songs. We take little bites that we feel like make us feel good for the moment out of their context and out of the misery and the pain and the suffering that these scriptures are written in. And when we do this, we kind of miss the power of what God is telling us in the midst of it. And that's what's happening here in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter nine, this is a very dark season in the life of Israel. This was not a time where sugar cookies were being baked in the oven and the aroma of hot apple cider filled the house. It was a time of misery, of darkness and despair. In fact, let me just kind of give you the historical backdrop of this. This was a season in Israel's life of deep sin. Injustice prevailed. This was a season where there, there was all kinds of economic unrest. There was failed foreign policy done, uh, done at the hands of a wicked king. War was looming. Uh, the nation was divided. And the enemy of God's people was about to attack and invade. And in fact, it was the Assyrian Empire that was coming in. The Assyrian Empire is considered to be the Nazis of the ancient days. And God is telling the people through the prophet Isaiah, the Assyrians are coming and they're gonna devastate you and they're gonna wipe you out. And this is gonna be a very dark season. In fact, chapter eight ends in verse 22 that sets up this verse in chapter nine. And this is what Isaiah says to the people. He says, and they will look to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This, listen to this, this is the context of this great Christmas passage that we often put on, put on Christmas cards. My encouragement for you is put that verse on the Christmas card. Like just put that there. And the very bottom, just put Merry stinking Christmas. But then God is going to give them in the midst of this darkness and distress, a message of hope. I want you to look at what happens next in the story. Listen to this. He's gonna tell them that they, even though there is gloom and there is anguish and there is darkness and there is distress, hope is on the way. Peace is coming. Look what happens now as we turn to Isaiah chapter nine. Look back in verse one. He says, but. I mean, the very first word of the very first phrase gives us hope. 
Chapter eight ends, distress, gloom, thick darkness. Chapter nine, but. In other words, God is gonna invade the circumstances and there's gonna be hope that's given. There's gonna be a victory that's gonna be granted to God's people. So we know, yes, anguish, yes, distress, yes, thick darkness, but God is going to intervene. Look what he says here. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And in the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, of the land of Naphtali. And the, uh, in the, the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, I want you to look up here for a moment and give you a little context here. He is describing a region that we know in the New Testament as the, as the, as the region of Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is. This is where Jesus' earthly ministry would be. This is where Jesus would perform majority of his miracles and spend the majority of his earthly life. That there in this region that he is describing. This is a war-torn region. This is a region that had its fair share of devastation. And in the midst of this, that God is gonna speak. He says, look, this land, this region, this area where darkness, anguish, devastation, I want you to know that it's not gonna last forever. And then he's gonna promise them something. He's gonna tell them how this is gonna change and what's gonna occur to bring about hope. Look what happens now in verse number two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy in the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, what he's talking about here in that phrase, he's saying this gloom and this anguish and this darkness, joy's coming. And he describes this joy in two ways. He said, the joy that's on your way, for those of you who have just been beat down with life, he says, the joy is gonna be like the joy of the day of the harvest. So when the harvest took place for God's people, it was a day of celebration. Why? Because God had provided everything that they needed. And so as they harvested all of their crops, they would rejoice and they would party and there would be unbelievable joy because God came through. But he said, it's also gonna be like on the day where the spoil is divided. Well, what is that about? Well, whenever uh, an enemy was conquered and there was victory, they would take the spoil, what was left over from the enemy, the enemy's possessions, and they would divide it up among themselves. So when he's talking about, this is a joy of victory. The enemy has been defeated. And so not only has God provided, God has now provided through the hands of the enemy. And there's rejoicing. He goes on to say this, look at this. He says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now check this out. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now notice what he's saying. He says, this region that's only known war and sorrow and darkness and anguish, he said, a victory is on its way. Your enemy is gonna be conquered. They're gonna be defeated. In fact, even the garments that have been stained with the blood of war will be fuel for the fire. The story is of God's provision, the way God is gonna come through with this Messiah that's gonna bring about victory. Now notice what he says. Let me give you a summary of what we just read. Isaiah is saying, He says, in the midst of your brokenness, he says, listen, he will turn your darkness to light. He will turn your anguish into joy. He will turn your gloom into glory. He will defeat, he will take your defeat and replace it with victory. He will unlock your shackles and give you freedom. I'm with Zeke. I thought there would be more than that with that type of promise. 
But this is what he's promising. The Messiah is gonna usher this in. He is gonna reverse all the effects of sin. He is gonna reverse, reverse everything that the enemy has caused in our life. All of the suffering of humanity will be done away with and he will establish peace forever. Anybody looking forward to that day? So now the question comes, and this is an important question. How? How is he gonna do this? I mean, this war-torn area, this place that's only known defeat where the enemy has conquered them and, and there's darkness and distress, all of these things that he's promised that's gonna come and be ushered in. How is he going to do this? What is gonna usher in this light? What is gonna grant this victory? Well, now we get to the Christmas card moment. You ready for it? Now we're in the verses we started with. Look what he says in verse number six. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Now I want you to follow what's happening here. Check this out. All of the darkness, all of the gloom, all of the anguish, all the defeat will be erased. Listen, not at the hand of a mighty army, but by a baby. A baby is gonna accomplish this. You see, this is what's amazing about God's power and strength that all of the adversaries that stand against humanity, God will defeat in a baby. And that just tells me something about God and his power that I don't quite understand. And you say, how's he gonna do this with a baby? Well, this is not an ordinary baby. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is Jesus he's talking about here. Isaiah gives us this great description of who Jesus is and what he's gonna do. That this baby who is gonna usher in this victory, there's a lot we learn about him here. And this is why we can find peace in this baby, this son that is gonna be given to us that will ultimately overthrow the enemy and give us the victory that was just described. So let me give you a couple of things that Isaiah communicates here about Jesus. First of all, if you're taking notes, write this down. Isaiah describes the nature of Jesus. Let me give you a summary of what I mean. The nature of Jesus. Isaiah describes Jesus here as fully man, fully God, completely sovereign. That this baby is no ordinary baby. This is the God man. Now notice what he says here in verse six. He says, for unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And then he says, and the government of this child that is born, of this son that is given, will be upon his shoulder. Now, what, what Isaiah is doing here is he's helping us understand the humanity, the deity, or the godness, and the sovereignty of this baby that's gonna be born. Notice what he says here, the first is this. He says, a child will be born. This is a way for Isaiah to highlight the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus is gonna be born. He's gonna be in, born in the, in the flesh. He's, he's gonna enter into the womb. His body is gonna develop and he's gonna be given birth to by Mary and Jesus, we're gonna see in a moment, who is God, is also going to be man. 100% man, 100% God. Now, oftentimes we give a lot of our focus to the deity of Jesus, which we should. 
that we've got to recognize that we're not, we're not looking at just a mere man. We are looking at the God man. So he is fully God. And oftentimes we gloss over the hope and the peace that we find in the fact that he's also fully man. So just think about this. The creator of the universe chose to become a fetus. He chose to enter into the womb, to humble himself, to unrobe the glory that he possesses, to put on the skin of the frailty of humanity. You know what that means for you and me? Is that everything you've ever faced, any emotion you've ever felt, any circumstances you've ever been through, Jesus understands exactly what you've gone through. Jesus knows what it's like to have your feelings hurt. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend. Jesus understands what it's like to be hungry. Jesus understands what it's like to push away from a table when you're satisfied and go like, ah, that was good. Jesus understands what it's like to stand beside the grave of a loved one and weep. Jesus understands what it's like to go through a season of sorrow where you think God's forgotten you. See, the scripture says that we have a high priest that we can approach Jesus. Why? Because he's lived among us. He's come in the flesh. He's born, but also he is given. Look what he says next. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now this, this picture here of a son being given is a glimpse into the eternal nature of Jesus. So this baby that's gonna be born is also a son that existed before he came. A son is gonna be given. John 3, 16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So what Isaiah is unlocking for us in a small way here is the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is the only person that's ever lived that actually existed before he was born. This son is gonna be given to us, God in the flesh, the creator of the universe living among us. And you see it in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. That he is the, he is the one that as he performs miracles, the, the, the power of almighty God rests upon him. And in fact, Isaiah is gonna say in a minute, his name shall be called mighty God. Why? Because he's not just a man. He is the God man. God put on flesh and the creator of the universe lived among us. Jesus did not lay aside his deity to step into humanity. But rather he veiled his deity with humanity. And then it says this, and the government should be upon his shoulder. Now, why is that so important? The government shall be upon his shoulder is a way of saying, this is a way of saying, referring to the weight of power that a king possesses. So in the ancient days, kings would wear these crowns and they would wear a robe. And oftentimes that robe was an indicator of the burden or the authority that that king walked in. So that, that authority means he had all power and all control over the kingdom. And yet there was a reminder that with that authority comes burden and responsibility. And so, and here's why Jesus is the great king, is that he is the only one, because he is fully God and he is fully man, he is the only person that's ever existed that has the ability to carry the weight of the government on his shoulders. This is why every president we elect will always, always, always fail us. Because they, they can't carry the weight of government. But Jesus can 
because he is sovereign and he is all powerful. He is all control. And because he is the God man, he is, listen, he is the one, listen, he is the one government leader we can always trust. I love this. I heard a pastor say this. He was telling a story about a king uh, long ago who annually, or two times a year rather, two times a year he would, he would unrobe himself of his kingly attire and he would put on the clothes of a peasant and he would leave the palace and he would go and live among the people for one day, two times a year. And all his advisors hated it. And they warned him, they said, this is gonna be your death. I mean, you can't do this. This is putting the whole kingdom in jeopardy. You can't do that. And he says, I don't think you can understand. You understand. He says, how in the world could I rule a people unless I live among them? How can I give government oversight and, and, and make these decisions but not really know the people that I oversee? You see, here's what we know of Jesus. Jesus stepped into humanity, clothed himself in flesh as God lived among us. And listen, he is the one king we can always trust because he understands us, he knows us, he's lived among us, and we can follow him regardless of what happens in this life. That's the nature of Jesus. Here's the second, check this out. The character of Jesus so the character of Jesus, let me summarize what Isaiah says and I'll unpack them phrase by phrase. He is the infinitely wise, all-powerful, eternally caring source of peace. This is what Isaiah describes. Look what he says in verse six. He says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these names, he says, we need to be called this. In the ancient days, names weren't just something you chose because you liked it or it was a family name or maybe it was a popular name of the day and time. You chose names based upon the nature and the character. You referred to someone in ways that described them. And what Isaiah is saying is, let me tell you about this baby that's gonna be born, this son that's gonna be given, the one whose weight of the world rests on his shoulder. Let me tell you what his character is like. Let me tell you what his nature is like. He is wonderful counselor, which means he is the infinitely wise one. And don't we understand this, that Jesus is the word of creation? That, that, that he is the word that spoke the world into existence. And so when you just look at the universe, just think about the universe for a moment, the complexities and the vastness of the universe, how those different solar systems and galaxies work together, how the planets are precisely put in certain locations. And even in the brokenness and the fallenness of the world, everything in the universe is orchestrated and works just like it's supposed to. It is, listen, it is a mystery to even the most brilliant of people. And yet it is simply the wisdom of God at display. Bring it down to 30,000 feet to the earth. Just think about our ecosystem, our, our seasons, and the way in which God has placed this little tiny planet in the vastness of the universe and the way in which it, it operates and just, just precisely the way that he has designed it to operate. Who did that? The wonderful counselor did that. The all-wise one did that. So eyes right here for a second. This is who Jesus is. This is why you can trust him with your life. So if, if the one who understands the mysteries of the universe, because he designed the mysteries of the universe, the one who causes everything to operate as it should on planet earth, don't you think that whatever plan he has for your life is gonna work the way he wants it to work? You can trust him 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He is infinitely wise. He is also mighty God. This is a reference to Jesus being all powerful. He is the God man. He has all power and all authority. Listen, over everything. The scripture says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. This is who he is. Mighty God. Now think about the earthly ministry of Jesus. Do we not see this on display? I mean, Jesus shows up at a party and they run out of wine. And what does he go? Hey, just bring me some water. We can make this thing work. Somebody who has been paralyzed or sick for decades, maybe their entire life, Jesus shows up and just with his word or his touch, all of a sudden they are made well on the spot. Jesus says, hey, listen, the crowds are hungry. You've got two fishes and five loaves, bring them to me. I'm gonna feed the multitudes. He's the one who says, I don't need land. I'll walk on water. He's the one when he goes to the funeral and he says, hey, I think the dead person is done being dead. Why don't you get up? He gets up. He is the one on the boat when the storm is about to capsize and sink the ship and everyone's freaking out. He stands up and he rebukes the storm like it's an out of control third grader. I've had enough of that. And the disciples go, who is this? that even the winds and the waves obey him. Let me tell you who he is. He's mighty God. That's who he is. He's the everlasting father. Everlasting father. This is not a Trinitarian statement. This is not getting us confused with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is describing the character of Jesus and the nature of Jesus as one who is eternally caring and tender who brings us into his family, who calls us his own, who provides for us. He's he's the everlasting father. You know what that means? He's gonna give you the tender care of a father and he's a father that's not walking out. Whatever you need, he will provide. He is the great. Now, this is why I think understanding mighty God and everlasting father is important that we understand that he is both of those things. Because oftentimes we only see God as this mighty God and we're living this, this terror and fear and we're afraid to draw near to him. But understand he is the mighty God, but he also is the eternal tender father who cares deeply for you. Is he the mighty God that we should trust in as all power? Yes, but he's also, listen, he's also a tender father who wants to give you a hug. He wants to be a safe place for you to cry. He wants you to know that I know your needs and I'm gonna take care of that because I'm I'm an everlasting father. This is why we can trust him because he was just mighty God. We might live completely in terror all the time, but since he's almighty God and he is everlasting father, we see that our dad, our, the one who embraces us as children, holds the universe in his hands and he cares deeply for us. Is anybody grateful for that? And he's the prince of peace. The prince of peace This is simply a way of saying he is the source of peace, not just some peace, all peace, all real peace. This settledness of soul that we talked about last week, the settledness of of everything around me may be chaos, but something within me just anchors me. This is what he's talking about. True peace, true contentment, 
Not, not, not peace like the world brings, that's just temporary, momentary peace, but lasting peace. Not maybe a peace treaty that, you, treaty that you've signed through the holidays to say, okay, we're not gonna call the divorce attorney yet. Let's wait till the holidays are over. We're not talking about that peace. We're talking about a peace where there is complete shalom in our life. This is what he brings. I love how Ray Ortland, pastor and theologian, looking at these names of Jesus and this description of Jesus with the backdrop of the Assyrians invading and all of the darkness and despair that God's people were facing. In the midst of all of this, uh, Ray Ortland uh, describes what's happening here like this. This is what he says. He says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answers to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. Look at Jesus as the wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats the enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him as the prince of peace. He reconciles us while we were still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. How beautiful is that? So we see the nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and then he highlights the kingdom of Jesus. What is the kingdom of Jesus? Here's the summary of it. His kingdom is an ever-expanding place of eternal peace where he will reign in justice and righteousness forever. Look what he says here in verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I heard it said like this. Jesus is the only government leader that you love more the more you know him. The more we get to know him, the more we're overwhelmed with him, what his kingdom is going to bring. Listen to what Isaiah says. His kingdom is an expanding, eternal kingdom of peace, of shalom, of rest for the soul where wars will cease, strife will cease. Listen, no more suffering, no more turmoil, no more war. And God, thank you, no more elections. No more mask. How about that? This is what he brings in. A clap for the mask. Listen. This is our king and what he brings. This is our source of peace. He will rule and reign in justice and righteousness. What does that mean? In justice, all his decisions will be fair and right. In righteousness, what does it mean? Everything will be done with purity of motive and be a blessing to creation. I don't know about you, but I'm longing for that day. I'm longing for that day. So let's, let's just kind of get down to some nuts and bolts here. Let's, let me get down to something because I, I think when we, you hear all of this, if you're going through a season of difficulty and darkness, and maybe your life is described like this, of just anguish and thick darkness and gloom, if you're honest, you might be feeling a little bit cynical right now. Because you're going, okay, that sounds all great, but where is it? 
My home life is still a wreck. I still got the diagnosis. We're still not able to gather with our family. I'm not gonna be able to pay my bills. So all of that is great, but what about me? What about right now where I am? Where's the peace for me? So let me kind of press in on a couple of applications here that I wanna help you bring this to your life where you are. Write this down if you're taking notes. So here's the first thing I want you to walk away with if you're in that season of darkness. I want you to know this. Jesus came to meet us in the middle of our brokenness. You need to know that Jesus came to meet you in the middle of your brokenness. Let me remind you what he says in verse one. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There is gloom and anguish, but now there's gonna be anguish and gloom ending. Now listen to what he says. In the former time, he brought contempt in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Again, let me remind you, this is the area in the region of Galilee. This was a border country. This was border region. This is a region that had only known poverty and war and battle and defeat. You see, being a border region means this. This was a gateway that whenever an invading army would come in to conquer any other land in this region, they would come right through Galilee, right through this region. So when an invading army was at its strongest, before there was any loss, they would march into God's territory through this pathway and they would just demolish it. And then when they conquered the enemy, or when they conquered the land, what would they do? When they would march back home, guess the last place they would leave? It'd be this region again. And they would do to it again what they did to it when they first came. This is a region that for generation after generation after generation, pain, sorrow, poverty, loss, devastation, on repeat. I've been to places in the world where that has been their history and I'm telling you, there is a calloused bitterness in those regions that we can't relate. Now listen, I know 2020 has been hard, but it ain't that. And don't miss this. This is where Jesus started his work of redemption. When Jesus stepped onto the planet and began his ministry of reconciliation and redemption, where does he start? He starts in this region. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Why? Because the light of the world came to the darkest place he could possibly come as a way of saying to you and me, if you're in a season of darkness, of pain and distress, listen, Jesus wants to step into your brokenness and bring the light of his glory into it. This is what he wants to do. You may be in a very dark season. And I want to tell you, listen, my heart hurts for you. But here's the great news. God is near the brokenhearted. Don't miss the truth that this is where Jesus began the work of redemption, where the majority of his miracles are done. Why? Because Jesus wants to live among the broken so that he might bring light and hope. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Peace is not something you obtain by effort, but received by grace. Peace is not something you obtain by effort, you receive it by grace. Again, let me remind you of of what we see in the verses of scripture here. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, listen to this, on them a light 
has shown. Now to verse three, look at this. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy of the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff uh, 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 for uh, his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as in the day of Midian. Now, what is going on here? Notice what's happening. This victory that's being described. He says, listen, in the midst of darkness, a great light has been seen because it's been shown on the people. In other words, they didn't go find their own light. They didn't look for the light. The light was shown upon them. In the midst of the darkness, God showed up by his grace. And then it says every victory that they're gonna get, he has done it, he has done it, he has done it. There's nothing in this entire passage that has anything to do with the work we're gonna do in order to get the victory and the peace that we need. It is all the work that he does because he is a gracious king. This is why I love what he uses when he says, uh, divide the spoil and give the victory as in the day of Midian. What is that about? Well, if you remember back in Judges, there was a, a man by the name of Gideon who defeated the Midianites. And that's what he's referring to here. Now, we'll remember that story. What was the story? Gideon had this army, and truthfully, he was a little bit outnumbered. The Assyrians were swarming like, like locusts covering the land, or, or, or Midianites, rather, were, were swarming like locusts coming in to invade the land. And so God tells Gideon to go lead the people to battle. And so, but he says, your army is too big. Now, this army that was already undersized is now being told by God they're too big. And so what do they do? He says, I want you to narrow it down. And so they narrow it down to 300. And I think, to me, when I read this story, this is just my opinion, I think he took 300 cowards to the battlefield. God's saying, look, you, your army, if you go and get this victory, you're gonna think you get, got the victory. It's my victory. And what does he do? He takes the 300 men and he goes to the battlefield. Here's where, where the instructions. I want you to take the horns and I want you to take lanterns and I want you to cover the lanterns up and I want you to surround the enemy in the thick of night. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, you're gonna break the covering for the lantern so that the light can break into the darkness. And so that's what they did. And as soon as that happened, as soon as the light broke into the darkness, the enemy became so confused that before God's people could even draw a sword, the enemy had defeated themselves. And Isaiah is saying, He's gonna do it again. But this time it's gonna be the greatest enemy of humanity that he's gonna defeat. That light is gonna break into the darkness and once again, the enemy will be defeated. Just like God did this then, he will do it again in a greater way. And that's why I love verse seven when he says, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Not, listen, not the Lord of hosts will do this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, God is passionate about delivering his people and giving victory to us in Christ. Which leads me to number three. And this is where I wanted to bring it home for you because some of you are so confused. You're like, man, where's the peace in my life? Listen to this, remember this. We are living in the space between two advents. Advent means arrival or coming. And we are living in the space between two arrivals and two comings. Here's what I mean by this. When Isaiah wrote this, he only saw this as one event. But now that Jesus has come, we understand now that what Isaiah is describing as one event is actually gonna be two events. So let me kind of illustrate it like this. How many of you have ever read a book and you, you know the ending of the story, but when you get to the end of volume one, you, even though you know how the story's gonna end, you, you haven't really read the story of how it's completed. Does that make sense? 
And so you're waiting for volume two to be released and you're longing, you know, like I don't really, this, this stopped at a place I didn't expect it to stop, but then you realize, okay, but here's how the story's gonna end. And so you kind of, now you're kind of waiting for the second part of the story to be released so you can read it and experience it in its fullness. That is where we're living. We look back at the first coming of Christ and see all that he has done. And yet there are things that he's promised that he's yet to do because we're living in the space between two advents. There is another coming of Christ and the fullness of everything he's promised will be ours. But so right now we're living in an already, but not yet. So already Christ has given us peace. Let me show you how. Later on in Isaiah chapter 53, he's gonna tell us what this son is gonna do to usher in this victory and to give us peace. Listen to what he says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I'm sorry. Surely he has borne our griefs. I repeated the verse earlier. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In the first advent, Jesus came to give a death blow to sin and death by his own death on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that gives us peace with God is on him. And by his wounds, we have been healed. We have been restored back to God. So the greatest peace that we're missing because of sin and its effect is peace between us and God. And in the first coming of Jesus, Jesus has ushered in this peace for you and me. You know what that means for us? That means for us that through the cross, Jesus died for our sins, making it possible for us to experience peace with God once again. And in his resurrection, he gave a death blow to death and overthrew the powers of darkness. In Jesus, now listen to this, we have victory over the enemy. We have peace with God. In Jesus, our gloom has turned into glory, our darkness into light, our anguish into joy, our shackles into freedom, and our defeat into victory. That is the peace that we now have because of the first advent. And so while the fullness of all that he is offering us is in here, we have that. And now we live with great hope because he's coming again. And when he comes again, he is ushering in all the other promises of peace that he said he's bringing with him. When we understand this reality, we can live with hope that there's an already and I have peace now, but the fullness of the peace is coming. And what that means for you and I is that the song that we sing in the midst of sorrow, just like Longfellow, can also end like the song that Longfellow wrote. You say, what do you mean? Let me read you the last stanza. He ends his song in the midst of his despair by turning to the hope that is his in Christ, the peace that is found in Jesus. He says this, he says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Wrong shall fail and right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. Is anybody longing for that day? This is what we have in Christ. This is the peace that is ours. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads just for a moment. For some of you that are in this room and watching online, you're uncertain of your relationship with Jesus. There is a question mark of whether or not your sins have been forgiven and the peace that you're lacking is the peace of uncertainty of knowing where you'll spend eternity. And this morning, I believe God has brought you here because he has peace he wants to give you, not peace like the world gives, but peace that is lasting. 
And that peace is found in trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you're uncertain about that, you can leave with certainty by simply coming to confession, coming to God in confession, saying, God, I am a sinner and I, I know that I, I need a Savior. I need to be forgiven. And I believe that Jesus is the one who came. He died and he resurrected and I want him to be the king of my life. If that is where you are today, you can simply, in your own words, pray something like that to him, confessing that. And here's what he says to you. Listen, he will forgive you. He will reconcile you to himself and he will give peace to you today. For others of you in this room, you're living, even though you know him, but you are living in a state of turmoil because you've forgotten what Christ has ushered in for you, the victory that has already been granted and the peace that you have now and the peace that is to come. And for some of you, that's the reason you're chasing things in this world. And so what you would wanna do is we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, to remember what Christ has done for us is that you would confess of anything that you're looking to to find peace other than Jesus. And you repent of that and you remember and ask God, God, as I take the bread, as I drink of the cup, help me remember the peace that I have with you and the peace that you bring into my heart because of what you've accomplished. And so over the next few minutes, for those of you who are believers, this is a time of confession and dependence and asking God to help you stand in the peace that is yours in him. Father, I love you and I thank you, God. And I pray that you would just speak to us in the next few moments. Let your spirit have his way. I pray that for those watching and those in this room who need to be saved would give their life to you, would trust you today. And for those who know you, we would prepare our hearts by just remembering and resting in the peace that is ours and what we take of the, of the bread and the cup is just a reminder of all that you have done for us to give us peace. God, we rest in you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's stand to, to our feet and let's just sing, prepare our heart and, and worship. And in a few moments, we'll pass the elements and we'll remember what Christ has done for us.